Pushing something forward is not that easy to do. And sometimes a profile in courage is required. And there aren't as many profiles in courage um, as I would like to see. Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader is David Rubenstein, the co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group and the author of a new book, compiling interviews with everyone from Bill Gates to Bill Clinton. He'll talk about what he's learned about leadership from those conversations and his own career. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. Leadership is trying to get other people towards a goal. Unless you're really able to push somebody forward, you're not really going to be a leader. David Rubenstein has a one-of-a-kind perspective on leadership. He worked at the White House, founded the global investment firm, The Carlyle Group, interviews top leaders for his show on Bloomberg, and is the author of a new book, How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers. He chatted with Meet the Leader to share a little bit about what he's learned from those conversations, as well as what he thinks makes leaders truly effective. You've got to plow through that resistance if you're actually going to accomplish anything. You know, nothing was ever done that's meaningful in life without somebody, um, you know, providing some resistance to it. He also took a moment to talk about the past year and how challenges can really set true leaders apart. But you have to rise to the occasion. And I, I would think that in the current uh, pandemic, we didn't rise to the occasion with as many great, courageous leaders as I think we should have had. But first, he'll talk about his early career working in the White House for the Carter administration and what that experience taught him about leadership. Well, I was the deputy to the domestic policy advisor to President of the United States. I was only 27 when we started. My boss was an old 34 years old, and uh, he had enormous amount of uh, influence with Jimmy Carter because he had been an advisor to him in Georgia on a variety of other things, so he knew him quite well. And so my job was to basically shadow my boss and follow up with him on things or represent him. And you know, it's a pretty heady experience to be 27 years old, working in the West Wing of the White House, going on Air Force One and Marine One with the president, going to Camp David. So I would say it was a job which I wasn't qualified for, but I was certainly happy to have. And did I have any great impact on the world? I don't know. I did lots of different things. Obviously, we didn't get reelected, so you could argue I didn't do my job as well as I should have. But I like to think that there were, you know, lots of things beyond our control, you know, the hostages and energy prices, inflation and so forth. But it was a heady experience. I enjoyed it and probably never had an experience quite as uh, enjoyable as that uh, since then, though I've been very much enjoyed when I, what I'm doing professionally now. But working as a young man in the White House in those days was quite, quite interesting. How did seeing how that walks and talks firsthand change your perspective about what leadership is really about? Well, Jimmy Carter was a person who came from basically a very modest position, a one-term governor of Georgia, and became the most powerful man in the world. So I was watching him up close and I could see his strengths and some of his, let's say, uh, weaknesses. But I generally took away from it that, you know, everybody has strengths and weaknesses. Nobody's a perfect leader. Uh, but I recognize that you could have enormous influence around the world if you, uh, as President of the United States, did things that were right. And uh, in many cases he did. But I didn't say to myself, well, I should be President of the United States because I could do the job better than him. So there's no doubt a lot of people work in the White House who think that they can do the job better than the boss that they're working for. But it did uh, have my view uh, shaped a bit about leadership. And I recognize having seen many other people 
in the administration who were leaders or people from outside the administration who were leaders in Congress or foreign governments, how leaders uh, operate and what they do right and what they do wrong. And I'm sure I absorb some of that. I want to talk a little bit about your transition from the White House, because I think that's a really interesting shift in the book. You explained that you were a junior leader one day with the potential to be a senior leader, but the next day you were unemployed, that law firms were, as you say, not dying to hire a 31-year-old ex-Carter White House aide with two years of law practice under his belt. You say that uh, humility came quickly and fortunately never left. What was that period like? Well, that was probably the low point of my professional life because one day people are telling you you're wonderful, you walk on water. Of course, they're telling you that because they want something from you or they're lobbying you or they're trying to butter you up in some way. And then the next day, if you lose the election, all of a sudden they, they won't return your phone calls. They won't even give you an interview, let alone hire you. So you have to kind of uh, recognize that uh, in Washington, D.C., if you want a friend, buy a dog, as Harry Truman famously said. Um, it can be very lonely when you're out of power in Washington, D.C. And so for six months or so, I really couldn't get a job that was commensurate with anything close to what I thought I deserved. And then eventually I took a job that was well below what I thought I deserved just to get a job. And I didn't want to tell my mother that her only child was unemployable. So I kept telling her that I had so many job offers, I didn't know which one to take. But in, I think eventually she figured out that probably wasn't the case. But eventually I started, I think, the practice of law probably in June of, of eight, 1981, when we left the administration in uh, January 20th. So it took a while. And I would say it's humbling and the humility probably has stayed with me. And ever since then, I always recognize the, the downside of how, you know, I got lucky to get a job eventually. And then something else happened that got me out of the practice of law. And I built a company with the help of others. So what drove you to do that? You were in the law firm for a little bit before you decided to form the Carlisle Group. But what made you decide to switch gears and become a founder? Well, one, I wasn't that good as a lawyer. Um, to be a great lawyer, you have to have enormous attention to detail. You have to have a specialty you really want to have. And I think you have some training on doing it. I only practiced law for two years. I'd missed the years of uh, when a lawyer should learn how to be a lawyer when I was in the White House, not really being a lawyer. And so I didn't really enjoy it because I wasn't that good at it. Also, I recognized eventually that the business of the law was really a business. In other words, when I went to law school, I thought I was a profession. You're a lawyer. You're a professional. But in the large law firms, it's really about how much money you make this month and how much money you're going to make next month. It really became a business as it is now. And therefore, I figured if I'm going to be in the business world, which is what the law firm world really is, why not be in a business world where you can make more money? I had never really cared about money. Money was nothing to me. I had none growing up. My parents had none. And I just didn't care about money. But eventually, as I got married and had kids, I said, OK, I guess I ought to have some money now to take care of my family. And so I thought I could probably make more in the business world, though I had no uh, background in business. So I just decided to take up a chance. And many people that start companies from Bill Gates to Steve Jobs to to um, you know Mark Zuckerberg, all of them, they, they built bigger companies than I ever did, but they, 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 they took a chance and they didn't think they were going to make it necessarily. And they, they got lucky and I got lucky as well. For sure. But a lot of people who are up for a change might just switch companies. They don't necessarily found a company. What makes you want to face those headwinds and become an entrepreneur? Well, whenever you start a company, you don't know how little you don't know. So if I had known then what I now know about how difficult it was to build a company, I wouldn't have started. I would say it's crazy, as people told me it was. But, you know, you, you have small ambitions. I didn't say, all right, I'm going to start one of the biggest private equity firms in the world. I said, I'm going to start a five or six person investment company. And it, it grew for a lot of reasons I could explain. But I didn't have aspirations to do what I ultimately did. 
I got lucky in many ways. We had some good fortune and so forth. But I think anybody that starts a company has a vision. They want to do something to prove that they can do it, to prove the point. I don't think Bill Gates uh, or Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos wanted to make as much money as they ultimately made. I don't, that was a byproduct. What they wanted to do was to prove that software worked. You could buy things over the internet or personal computers were really important. They wanted to prove that as I wanted to prove that you could be based in Washington, D.C. and still be an intelligent investor. Was there a role that humility also played in that? Everything that an entrepreneur does is a calculated risk. Did that uh, sort of sense of humility that you have uh, have any sort of role in informing the types of risks that you took as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think you get humility when you are not, um, you know, in life successful at everything. So if, if I had been a All-American athlete, a Heisman Trophy winner, Rhodes Scholar, Supreme Court clerk, I suspect I would have been arrogant. But since I got n none of those in my uh, resume and I was, you know, an okay student and an okay uh, young professional, but nothing spectacular. People haven't they really asked me, uh, why were you not more successful when you were younger? You wanted to be a leader. How come you weren't a good athlete? You weren't a, a star at anything. And I kind of asked myself all that. I guess I, you know, just didn't have the either intellectual equipment or the, the, uh, the, the drive, the, uh, uh physical equipment to be a, a leader in anything. Um, I think the most useful thing I can do with my book is try to convince people who have mediocre to average abilities like I did, that you keep working hard and don't give up, eventually something good will happen. Because sometimes when you have success early in life, you burn out. You do get a certain level of humility. And I think humility is probably something that can get you through in the early years of business. Because if you go and you're starting a business and you're arrogant when you're talking to investors or hiring people and you're arrogant, you're not going to get investors. You're not going to hire people. And I think as a general rule of thumb, humility is much more important than arrogance in, in terms of having a quality that's going to help you build a business. I wouldn't brag about how great we were. When I was meeting with investors, I tried to be humble and explain what we were trying to do and not try to tell them they'd be stupid if they didn't invest with us and how we were the greatest thing in the world. And just, you know, asking for an opportunity and trying to be humble about it. I think that was probably helpful. Many of the people I interviewed, actually, while they're very, very famous, and when you talk to them, they actually have a fair amount of humility about them because they realize they got very lucky in life in some ways. I want to talk a little bit about the book. And in it, you mentioned that you like to barrage other leaders with questions about what brought them to leadership. It's a particular type of question. And I wanted to ask you, what drives you to ask it? Uh, there's a Yiddish word for this called yenta, which means you want to know everything. So I, you know, my mother told me, don't be barraging people so much with questions. But I found that I really like to learn more about people and what made them tick. And so very often when I'm meeting with investors, I would like to have them talk about what they're doing and learn more about them than maybe making my own pitch. So I, I guess in becoming an interviewer, which happened late in life, I guess it kind of worked reasonably well for reasons I can explain, but I apparently um, was able to do the interviewing part that in a way that people found pleasing. And why do you think it worked so well? What happened was I started bringing some people into Carlisle at investor conferences and they weren't great speakers. I was paying them a lot of money, former presidents of the United States or secretaries of state. So I thought maybe I can make it more exciting if I interview them and I would intersperse some humor and people seemed to like it. And then when I became the president of the Economic Club of Washington, I was supposed to get speakers. They weren't that great either. I started interviewing them and people liked it and I used some humor to make it work. My style is one to not embarrass people, to let them tell their story have them talk about their backgrounds, which people like to do, and, and, their, and, and how they became successful and what were their leadership skills that enabled them to get to the top. And, and, and the interviews seemed to have worked. And obviously it went on TV and uh, the TV interviews led to the book. 
For sure. Tell me about compiling those interviews into the book. Uh, you didn't have to do all that. Why write this book and why write it now? Well, leadership is um, something that I think is important because I think societies need good leaders. So my goal was to explain how some of these people became great leaders, but letting them use it in their own words, and then maybe inspire younger people to read about these people and say, I could do this, or here's something I shouldn't do. That's one goal. Secondly, I realized uh, that I had lived a longer life than most people who probably lived on the face of the earth, because most people on the face of the earth probably haven't made it to 70 years old. I, so when I hit 70, I came out with my first book on the 71 when this book came out. And I uh, recognize, and I should say that the 1900, the average life expectancy, when you were born in 1900, was 49. When people came out of caves 400,000 years ago, the average life expectancy was 20. So I realized, though, that while I might have accomplished some things in the business world, the philanthropic world, I hadn't left behind a written legacy uh, in some respects. So I thought, okay, I'd like to have something my children can have behind. I'm sure they'll never read the book, but maybe leave something that, you know, is a book that I wrote. And so I figured, okay, I have a full-time job. How can I write a book? And one of the tricks was to take the interviews I've already done, digest them a bit, write a summary. It was not as hard as, you know, it wasn't writing The Origin of Species or Principia Mathematica. It wasn't that hard to do. So I did that. And now I say to myself, what was I doing the first 70 years of my life? I should have written a book every year from the time I was 30 on, but nobody wanted it and I didn't think of it. So now I'm trying to do one book a year. So that's really interesting. Why a book a year? Well, it's an easy way to measure. I could say one book every 14 months, but that wouldn't be as easy to explain. So one year. Um, the reason is, you know, my parents made it to 85 or 86. I probably have genes that are probably going to get me to maybe my early 80s. Uh, I don't exercise that much. So probably I'm not sure I'll make it to the mid 80s. But if I could do one a year, that would produce uh, maybe 10 books. And that would be a nice little thing for my children and grandchildren to have behind. Though People like to read other people's thoughts about themselves. Interestingly, the interview format, which we're now engaged in, is a relatively new phenomenon in the history of the world. Humans came out of caves 400,000 years ago. For most of organized history, people didn't interview each other. My, my kind of research shows that as a form of entertainment and information, it probably started in, the, in the, the Tonight Show in the early 1950s in the United States, where people would come on a show and they would be interviewed in part for information, part for entertainment. And that led to other talk shows and then led to the world we now have today, where we have a lot of interview shows and, and podcasts. Now it seems like everybody's interviewing everybody. But why is it developed this way? Well, there's no doubt that people find it interesting to hear other people in their own words say something that's shorter than a speech. Um, I would love to have had a situation where Abraham Lincoln was interviewed, Napoleon was interviewed, Cleopatra was interviewed. We don't have that. We didn't, that format didn't exist. No interview of George Washington. Um, think about it. No interview of William Shakespeare. I would love to interview, have interviewed him and said, uh, Will, um, who really wrote those plays? Did you really write all those plays? Because some people think you didn't. We would love to know these things, but we're not going to ever find out. There's no interview of Abraham Lincoln. It's never done exist. I would like to ask him, why did you not decide to free the slaves at the beginning of the Civil War? How did he get so educated, never having gone to school for more than a few months? And I guess I'd like to ask him, how did you learn how to write with such precision and such fluidity and such sparseness, the Gettysburg Address has 272 words. That's it. And it defines what democracy is all about in ways that nobody else has really been able to ever uh, improve on. Mm -hmm. So I think when history goes forward a thousand years from now, podcasts will be around and people can go back and look, you know, why people 
did what they did, and we'll have a better information base than we do for things that happened thousand years ago, hundred years ago, and so forth. In your interviews, leaders share their experiences, but they also share how they work and how they lead. Is there an approach that surprised you, something that you wouldn't have considered, but something that works and that's worth putting into practice? I've known Jeff Bezos for a long time. Uh, and in fact, when he was starting his company, uh, we were my firm was involved a bit. Unfortunately, we had some stock, which we didn't hold on to. It's probably worth about $10 billion by now. But um, when I interviewed Jeff in front of a 2,000-person audience uh, and, and at interviews in the book, he told me some things that surprised me. One is he insists on getting eight hours of sleep a night. I said, oh, my God, I've been only getting six hours of sleep my whole life. So think how much more successful I could have been if I was getting eight hours of sleep. So I not only didn't get that sleep, but I was less successful. Secondly, he doesn't make any big decisions before 10 a.m. in the morning. thinks his mind isn't really focused. So I've been making a lot of decisions around breakfast meetings. That was a mistake. And then he says he doesn't make any decisions after like five or six o'clock in the afternoon because he thinks that's not a good thing either. And then he says he, I, he uses intuition more than anything else to make his decisions. So, you know, I learned a lot from that interview. And obviously, you know, he's built the biggest, one of the biggest companies in the world. So he must know what he's doing. Have you tried to put any of that into play yourself? So I'll give you an example that I have tried to implement. Uh, Jim Baker was a partner in my firm. He was a former Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, White House Chief of Staff. Jim Baker was taught by his father a certain thing that he was drilled into him, and Jim Baker did it his whole life, and I, I think he's got me doing it. It is prior preparation prevents poor performance. Now, Jim Baker would add, prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. But whatever you say, I think he was always well prepared. And so, for example, when I do interviews, I prepare the questions in advance. I um, read everything I can about the person. If I'm interviewing somebody about a book they have written, I always will read the book as a courtesy and also make sure I know what I'm talking about. So I do try to prepare. And if I'm going to meetings or anything, I'm always trying to be prepared so I know what I'm doing. I mean, I, I can wing it, but I think when I wing it, I'm not as good as when I'm prepared. So the Davos agenda is coming this January. And uh, as you know, it brings together all sorts of leaders from different walks of life, different countries, different companies. Are there any issues that you really would like to see leaders prioritizing and uh, discussing this year? Well, as we go forward, how we can prevent further pandemics, because um, we will probably have more pandemics for lots of reasons, but these so kind of these so-called zoonotic diseases, which spring from animals or jump from animal species to human species, are probably going to happen more frequently. How can we do a better job of dealing with it? Look at the terrible job we've done. So many people have died, and we still don't have the vaccines freely available to everybody that wants one. It's going to take a long time. So we're going to probably lose much of this year or this coming year dealing with the after effects of the, of the vaccine uh, and the virus. But how do leaders should focus on how we can prevent one of these two, um, how we can, uh, of course, deal with the income inequality um, problems that have been exacerbated by uh, COVID. Um, we had income inequality and lack of reduced social mobility in the United States and other Western countries in recent years. That's going to get much worse because of COVID, because people that don't have internet connections or don't have the kind of jobs that uh, allow people to keep working remotely, those people have suffered a lot and, and a lot of those people are not going to get their jobs back. So that's a big problem we have to deal with. And then also uh, the general issue of health care um, overall. Had the Constitution of the United States was been drawn up this year, let's say. Remember, the Constitution of the United States was drawn up by 55 white Christian males, property people. Um, if we had a new Constitution, uh, it would presumably be a constitutional convention that was developed by women, be 50%, presumably. Um, there'd be, you know, people from all 
ethnicities and so forth, it would be a different group. Now, if we had such a constitutional convention today, what would be the principal change? Well, leaving structure and other things aside, there would no doubt be a Bill of Rights and attached to the Bill of Rights would be two things that we don't have in our current constitution. One is equal rights amendment or the equivalent. And secondly, the right to health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time that the constitution was drafted, nobody thought you have a right to health care. You don't have a right to it. People would have laughed at that idea. But today, it's something that everybody regards, I think, as a fundamental right of, of being a human, the right to decent health care. And it's not in the constitution. Obviously, we struggle with how to give everybody adequate health care. So that's a key thing that we ought to deal with. How can we make sure people have adequate health care? And also last, how can we make certain that um, there is greater um, cooperation between countries that are at times uh, fighting with each other? And that's what statesmanship is all about, is trying to reduce war and reduce hunger and famine and, and death by military kinds of means. And that's an ongoing problem. But I think the new administration in the United States can probably tackle some of the problems that are now with us. It's an impossible question, but what would need to change to really make headway on one of those, whether it was inequality or climate or weather or even uh, global cooperation in your mind? If we were going to pick one to make headway on, what would we need to uh, move forward and make progress? Well, generally, you know, you, you can make social change two ways. One is revolutions from the bottom. In other words, uh, revolutions are usually started by younger people and uh, people that have uh, less to lose and they kind of bubble things up and concepts take a hold. And so you need to have people, I think, pushing these ideas from the bottom, or you need some really gifted leaders from the top who are willing to politically sacrifice some of their prestige and maybe some of their power to fight for something that would be unpopular at the time it's passed, but ultimately will be a good thing for the world. So we need some uh, profiles and courage at the top, and we need more people at the bottom willing to really fight for causes that, that are meaningful to, to, to large par- parts of society. I think that this past year, for sure, I, I think that this past year drove home for people who maybe weren't thinking about climate, weren't really thinking about inequality or health care. Uh, it really drove home those gaps that were always there, but maybe weren't as obvious since some people maybe became unemployed for the first time in lo- their life or they were in a, in a food bank line for the first time in their life. Um, was there anything unique or surprising that this past year taught you about leadership that you may not have really thought about otherwise? Well, as I say in my book, when I, I had written the book and then I went back and amended it a little bit uh, when COVID came along by adding one other quality of leadership, which is rising to the occasion. You know, if Abraham Lincoln had been president and there was no civil war, we might not be talking too much about Abraham Lincoln today. If there had been no depression or World War II, we might not have talked about or not, might not be talking about FDR. So you have to rise to the occasion. And I I would think that in the current uh, pandemic, we didn't rise to the occasion with as many great courageous leaders as I think we should have had. Um, Clearly somebody in the book was, did rise to the occasion and then withstood a lot of criticism and death threats. And that's Tony Fauci, who I regard as a friend. And I think he did a terrific job. And I think he will continue to do a terrific job with uh, President Biden. But I'm not sure that so many other political leaders rose to the occasion as much as maybe they should have. Some did, but not as many as I think we probably should have. That's interesting. Do you think that that's a question that leaders should be asking themselves as a sort of gut check to make sure that they aren't getting into stasis, that am I rising to the occasion? Am I doing what the moment needs right now? Why do people want to be leaders? Presumably it's because they think they can do something useful for humanity. But sometimes people are more interested in doing something useful for themselves. 
why are members of Congress so obsessed with not doing anything that will upset voters uh, and just keeping their office? Well, obviously, um, you know, they enjoy the job and they like the stature and the status associated with it. But sometimes a profile in courage is required. And there aren't as many profiles in courage um, as I would like to see. And I'm not saying that if I was in Congress, I'd be a profile in courage either. You have to to not be afraid of losing your job if you're going to be in politics. And sometimes you just have to do something that you think is the right thing to do, even if in the end it's unpopular uh, with your constituents. And I think if you do that, you're more likely to be proud of what you've done with your life as opposed to just saying I was a congressperson or senator for X number of years. But you've got to plow through that resistance if you're actually going to accomplish anything. You know, nothing was ever done that's meaningful in life without somebody, um, you know, providing some resistance to it. You know, I guess one of Newton's laws is that a body in rest likes to stay at rest. So, um, you know, generally people are comfortable with the status quo or it wouldn't be the status quo. But if you're going to change the status quo, you got to push. And so pushing something forward is not that easy to do. And it takes some courage sometimes and willingness to sacrifice your your um, position. I'm sure people ask you this all the time, but if you were going to define leadership, what would you say? Leadership is when somebody or some organization, but typically one person, is trying to get other people to follow him or her towards a goal. So you're trying to say, I want you to march here. I want you to do this. I want you to have this thought. I want you to understand this. It's when you're trying to convince people to do something that they might not otherwise do. And so unless you're really able to push somebody forward, you're not really going to be a leader. So you've got to figure out how to cultivate people and get them to do something they might not otherwise do. And that's what leadership's all about. We're advancing in many ways. And as we advance, we can advance slowly or we can advance better ways or we can advance in bad ways, but we should figure out how to advance in a good way. And that's what we should try to want our leaders to do is try to figure out how to convince civilization and move civilization forward in a progressive way. Is there a book that you think everyone should read? Something that you recommend to people? Other than uh, How to Lead? Well, that's front and center. Beyond that, once they finished that, read it a couple times more, noted it, put post-it notes in it, what would you recommend they read second? I do try to read two books a week, and I have a trick to doing it, which is I read things about subjects I know something about. So if I had to read a physics book or chemistry textbook, it would take me about three years to get through it. But by reading biographies, uh, business books, uh, books on philanthropy, books on politics, I, I can probably get through them. A uh, book on my former boss by Jonathan Alter on uh, Jimmy Carter is a very uh, good book. James Shapiro has a wonderful book out now on how Shakespeare has affected American life. Highly recommend that he's a leading Shakespeare scholar at, at Columbia. A, a very good book that won the Pulitzer Prize is by David Blight on uh, Frederick Douglass, another you know American hero. And, uh, and of course, one of the greatest history books I've ever read is the book by Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, Team of Rivals, about what made Lincoln tick and how he survived with all the kind of rivals in his cabinet. More books have been written about Abraham Lincoln than any, than any Americans ever lived. And so I asked her once, well, why would you write a book about Lincoln? Because everything's been written. And so she, as she delved into it, she wasn't sure what the hook would be. And then she realized that he had put a lot of his enemies in the cabinet and actually he had a quote, team of rivals who became a team of allies because they ultimately revered Lincoln. And so what you get from that is that even though you have enemies, even though you have competitors, if you work together with them, you can achieve some great things. And obviously, a lot of other politicians have been affected by that view, but some have not been. We can all improve. We're coming into a new year, new resolutions, new things like that. Is there anything that looking into the new year that you would like to do even 10% better? 
what I'd like to do is uh, continue what I'm doing. Uh, right now, when you reach the age that I am, 71, you realize you've lived more than you're going to live and that you have a finite period of time before the brain collapses or the body gives out. And nobody knows which is going to give out first. In some cases, they both could give out the same time. So what I'm trying to do is not play shuffleboard or improve my tennis game. I would like to try to you know, write some more books, change people's lives, inspire people to give back to the country. And I call what I'm doing sprinting to the finish line. So I don't know when my time will be up, but I don't want to be on my deathbed saying, geez, if I'd only done this, I'd only done that. I want to be at the point where I say, look, I had lived, lived a good life. I did everything I could realistically do with the abilities I had. And I'm satisfied for the next generation to carry on. And hopefully they'll remember me in a couple of years. That was David Rubenstein. Before we go, don't forget to check out this week's episode of World vs. Virus. When they started locking down the ports, nobody can even go outside the vessel. That's when everybody on board realized that, oh, this is really serious. This is the global pandemic. On this week's World vs. Virus, the podcast from the World Economic Forum, we hear about the forgotten victims of COVID-19, the thousands of seafarers stranded at sea as countries locked down and refused to let them land. You have to imagine being on board without any line of sight on when you can expect to go home. Missing birthdays, weddings, funerals, being able to be there for critically ill family members. So it has been a tremendous psychological strain. As labour unions and shipping lines call for seafarers to be given key worker status, we hear from people stuck at the sharp end. One of my crew members at the moment who's supposed to go home, he's just become a father and he's not able to go home and see his child. Marriages has been broken, members of the family are dying, people could not cope with stress and situation on board. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. World vs. Virus from the World Economic Forum. That's a highlight from World vs. Virus, brought to you by Robin Pomeroy. Get that on all of our World Economic Forum podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other top platforms. My thanks go out to Robin Pomeroy, Gareth Nolan, and Anna Bruce Lockhart for all of their help with the production of this episode. Thanks, of course, go to this week's guest, David Rubenstein. And thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch slash podcasts. And follow us online on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and Twitter using the handle at WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>